Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children and youth through adoption, foster, and kinship care. Hosted by an adoptive mom with over 22 years of kinship and adoptive parenting experience, she's on this journey with you. Please welcome Sandra Flack. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey. I'm Sandra Flack, grateful to be with you today as August draws to a close. Now, some of us have started back to school and some of us have kids about to start back in September, whichever is the case for you and your family. Our guest today will be another inspiration as we kick off a new school year. And since September is right around the corner, I have some FASD announcements because September is National FASD Awareness Month. If you are a regular listener to this podcast, you know that FASD is Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder and FASDs affect um, a huge portion of Uh, the population of kiddos in foster, adoptive, and kinship placements. So I talk about it a lot. I have two teenage sons diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome. So this is um, something that is near and dear to my heart. And I'm on the FASD journey, as are many of you. Um, So as we talk about it, we're going to be focusing on FASD throughout all of the month of September, all of our podcast episodes, as well as our social media. And I am thrilled to announce that JFO, our nonprofit, is a proud platinum sponsor of Run Fast, Run FASD, the annual event raising awareness about FASD, working to make this invisible disability visible. You can join participants around the country, across the country, um, by creating a team in your community, or you could just go out for a, a run or a walk or a stroll or a bike ride with your family or all by yourself or with family members, whoever you want to do that with, anywhere you want to do it, you know, snap a selfie and use the hashtag RunFASD. If you want to be really official, you can go to runfasd.org to register officially. And if you do it far enough in advance, you'll be able to register with and get some bling. Anywhere's from getting a t-shirt on our logo was on the back of that t-shirt this year again. Um, and you can get a, a, a runner's bib that with a number on it. Um, you can get a medal that says Run FASD on it, which is really cool. My son Slava loves his medals every year. Um, or you can just walk and do the hashtag and show up for um, representing and advocating for people with FASD. So check it out runfasd.org to learn more. And before we meet today's guest, check out these important announcements. Natalie Vecchione of the FASD Hope Podcast and Sandra Flack of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey Podcast would like to invite you to join their Hope for the FASD Journey. 
a virtual support community for parents and caregivers raising individuals with an FASD, diagnosed or not. This faith-based community includes an online bi-monthly support group, a monthly VIP conversation, and a private Facebook group which includes a video devotional from Natalie and Sandra every Saturday. To register, visit justicefororphansny.org forward slash training forward slash F-A-S-D. Oh, I have to say, our online support group is a vital resource for families. And myself and Natalie Vecchione, who co-leads it with me, um, we get so much out of this group. It, it, it ministers to us as well. We feel well supported um, as we're supporting each other in the group. So I hope that you will check it out if you are parenting kiddos who you suspect, you know, maybe were prenatally exposed to alcohol, or maybe you know that there was drugs, but you don't know about the alcohol. Did you know that alcohol actually causes more damage. It's more harmful than other drugs and the harm is longer lasting. Um, so you have to know about FASD folks. That's why we talk about it so much. So um, if you suspect it or if you know it, whether your kiddos are diagnosed or not, check us out. Check out our support community um, because you're going to find it vital to your parenting journey. I've also got some online workshops on FASD coming up. I'm offering a one-hour intro to FASD on Wednesday, September 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern time. That intro is really great if you're you know, maybe you know enough about FASD right now, but you know, maybe you want your, your child's Sunday school teacher or youth group leader or grandparents or babysitter or bus driver, teacher, whoever um, is in their life, interacting with them, your adult siblings, your adult kids who are their siblings, right? Um, it's a great introduction. Um, I kind of just briefly introduce you to the neurobehavioral model along the way with that. Um, but it's a great introduction. It's one hour, um, so you can check that out. And if you want a deeper dive, maybe you've done the one hour, maybe you've done our three hour, maybe you really feel like you know enough about FASD, you want something a little bit more. Well, I am offering a deep dive into FASD with the FACETS Neurobehavioral Model. Uh, beginning on October 11th at 7 p.m. Eastern. This workshop is six consecutive Wednesday nights, six weekly three-hour sessions for a total of 18 hours of FASD training. Um, it's six Wednesday nights in a row, starting on October 11th at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Now we offer certificates of completion for all of our workshops. And if you're a social worker licensed in New York, we offer CEUs as well. To register for any of these online workshops or to check out all of our available trainings, if you're interested in maybe even just having a one-on-one -on -one coaching session with me um, or something a little bit more in depth, but more one-on-one, -on -one, you can check out our website, justicefororphansny.org. You would click on registration if you want to register for the two, one of the two 
uh, trainings that I just mentioned, or if you just kind of want to see all of the things that we offer potentially, um, you can just click on training and then you'll see the drop down. You'll see FASD and you can check it out there. And we've included a link to the website in the show notes to make it easy for you to find that. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Subscribe, follow, whatever it is that your podcast platform calls it. Um, We don't want you to miss a single episode. And we want to make it easy for other adoptive, foster, and kinship caregivers to find this show and be encouraged and equipped too. So even leave a review. If you're listening through Apple, um, then please leave us a review, follow, um, and make it accessible to everyone. We really, really, really appreciate that. So now that all the preliminaries are done, I wanna introduce you to our guest today. Michelle Catania is a marriage and family therapist who is licensed with the state of Connecticut and has a background that includes a master's in marriage and family therapy from Southern Connecticut State University and a bachelor's in psychology with certification in elementary education from Franklin Pierce University. She worked with the Nurturing Families Program at UConn Health before starting her private practice. She has expertise in brain-based disorders, including ADHD, autism, and fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. She is a Circle of Security Parent Educator, a facet neurobehavioral model trained therapist that works with families who are in the adoption world and with families trying to improve their attachment and overall successful functioning for their families. She was a preschool teacher for over 15 years and has children of her own, two naturally, and one through special needs adoption. And she's also a homeschooling mom. We're going to talk to her about all of the above. Please welcome Michelle Catania. Hi, Michelle. Hi. Thank you for inviting me to this. Well, I am excited to have you on. Um, Our mutual friend, Natalie Vecchione, uh, introduced us. So I can't wait to uh, hear more of your story and for our listeners to hear your story. Yes, that yeah, I Natalie is great. And I've talked with her. um, I've chatted with her a couple of times on podcasts, but I've also spoken to her a lot in uh, via that's one of the great things about social media, I think, is that I got to know her and, um, and hear more of her story. And she got to hear more of mine. And I love how that can connect us in that in especially with this. With FASD. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the great things I think that sort of came through COVID is being able to more and more connect like this. Um, so, so, and now we're just also used to connecting and, and taking advantage of that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's so great. Um, I know that you have quite the resume as a professional, but you're also an adoptive parent. So would you share that part of your story? What led you to adopt? Yeah. So, you know, what's funny is um, we always have the best laid plans and then God changes them a little bit. So we had two children and I really felt like there was still a child missing, but my husband did not. And so he even went all the way through medical stuff so that we wouldn't have any more babies. And, um, and I, I would ask him every couple of months for about two years, like, hey, so you thought any more about adoption? And his answer was always, nope, never thought about it. And then one day, one, um, we had gone on a family trip to an indoor water park for the weekend, and there was a lot of families there, didn't think anything of it. And about, we came home um, the following day, and 
And again, just as I randomly asked for the last two years, hey, you thought any more about adoption? Um, and he actually said, yeah, I did. He, there was a family at, um, at the water park that really caught his eye. And he, um, he's like, I really, I think I want to do that. And as soon as he did it, he, as soon as he had the, yeah, I want to, which is a total God thing. Um, he made the phone calls to the adoption agencies. We had gone to a DCF, um, uh, foster care, um, workshop about a year prior on my birthday and before we'd gone out to, and then we went out to dinner afterwards and we realized with the family that we had our oldest probably couldn't handle the um kind of the the difficulty that sometimes happens where children are like placed in a family for two months and then taken out and then placed back in another foster family and and um taken out and got and he couldn't attachment style wise he couldn't handle it and so we knew that we needed to do if we were going to do it we needed to do private adoption um and so we started the path um we <laughs> it it was not anything like we thought you know we our adoption agency that we had out here in connecticut um adopts out about five children a year so our plan our original thought was that our child wouldn't be from connecticut because that was very unlikely. So we had, you know, adoption, um, we had put, we had connected with an adoption agency in Ohio that worked with special needs kids. And we worked and we had a, um, down in Georgia was the other place that we had put in um, our applications. And um, we had a call about eight months in from, we had just put in our information for a little girl that was going to be born with Down syndrome in another state. Um, which are, so our adoption agency knew that we were open to special needs. Um, and they got a, they got a, um, a call from one of the other adoption agencies in the, in the state that they had a child who was born with, um, facial features for fetal alcohol. And they didn't have anybody in their base who, um, had, would consider that. And so they had reached out to all the other adoption agencies in the state. Um, and so we were one of two parents who they contacted, um, about, him and then he had been born about three weeks prior to that or two weeks prior to that um and so then the ball really went fairly quickly from there and then he came home at he was three weeks when he came home wow and did you know anything about fetal alcohol syndrome prior to that so i knew very little as in i knew enough to check the no box in the georgia paperwork this is where again where god goes connecticut doesn't have that paperwork so in georgia you fill out yes no or will discuss we said yes no or will discuss to everything literally everything the only box we checked no to was for fetal alcohol syndrome because i in grad school um had a client with fetal alcohol syndrome and saw and and my um grad school professor had talked about she had adopted nine children and so she talked about how fetal alcohol um, syndrome the symptoms are almost always behavioral and how in that again this was you know um probably 15 20 years ago there was so much in the way of n not a whole lot of understanding and that it's always going to be hard and that so i was like mm, well we'll just check no to that box <laughs> and then god's like oh but i got a plan <laughs> So, so your son came home at three weeks old. So tell us about that adjustment. And like, when did 
you start recognizing the behaviors of FAS? So we, I was prepared, so uh, prepared. Um, I was, I had read one book that they told me I needed to read a book on fetal alcohol syndrome. And it was a book from like a, a long time ago. I can't even remember what the name was. I tried to Google it and I couldn't even find it. Um, and I listened to one podcast of a family who talked about their child and some of the struggles they had with fetal alcohol. And, um, that was my, my information. And so, but I had read online, there were lists of like symptoms and one was no sleep and difficulty with attaching. And so, um, I, I come from an attachment kind of point of view in my, in my practice. And so I was really confident on working through those attachment styles, very much chest to chest, very much, um, eye contact holding him when he's sleeping, making sure he's sleeping with clothing or, um, blankets that have my scent to it, my husband's scent, that kind of thing. Um, and sleep, I was like, Oh, I'm prepared for terrible sleeping. Right. So, uh, for the first eight months, he slept fantastic. Like, he would go to sleep in the swing. I'd bring him upstairs. I'd give him a bottle. He'd fall back asleep. Like eight months, it was like, oh, I don't know what anybody's talking about. At eight months, the switch flipped, <laughs> completely flipped. Yeah. Um, and he went from sleeping to up anywhere between 15, 20 times a night. And so that lasted for about, I don't know, what are we, he's now 11 uh we just got it under control so where it's not maybe a year ago we got it under control so for a very long time so sleep was the one i was prepared for we saw that um we saw that about eight months in but we saw there was difficulty with sucking there was some he also has hypotonia which is a flabby muscle disorder um that uh, like kids with down syndrome possibly have or other people with um like again some of the brain-based disabilities and so for him um some of his muscle weakness everything was kind of put under this everything was related to FAS. Anytime we went to a doctor, it was like, well, it's because he has fetal alcohol. Oh, well, he has, because he has fetal alcohol. Um, so he, he has, um, so we saw a lot of the muscle stuff about six months. We did started birth to three, um, birth to three came in for speech. They came in for, he had very high sensory issues. Um, so in the beginning, when he was first born, all of his sensory issues was shut down. So he would fall asleep in the absolute chaos. Like we, <laughs> we would play Metallica and ACDC to get him to go to sleep. Like he needed that high, like total contrast of what you would think. Um, so we had those early, early on birth to three. He was very much um, eye tracking. He also, he had two lazy eyes um, and they went in separate directions. So he had surgery early on for that. Um, and he had a heart murmur. Those were the uh, the ones that we knew, like that the doctors connected to fetal alcohol. I love the fact that your the doctors were connecting everything because I typically find it's the opposite. Where because one of our boys who have FAS, he came, we adopted him at age three, severe scoliosis. His spine was like a corkscrew, and as he grew, and he has other skeletal anomalies, like just odd things. But the, the orthopedic surgeon working on his spine would, you know, I would say, I think that this is probably from, you know, he was like, oh, there's no, that like, I wouldn't know that, you know, like there was nobody, nobody typically, it seems 
makes that connection. But the fact that you had a you he came with a diagnosis then of FAS. Well, he had, so it was, it was on his paperwork. It was perceived FAS. Yeah. So, but it did make, it did make diagnosing. We got him diagnosed at three. It made it like, I hear horror stories who are, people are searching for years. And I, that was a blessing because we knew what haystack we were looking into, right? Like the symptoms are all completely different, but we knew we were looking under, um, and his birth mom, um, is an alcoholic and had been very, um, open about her drinking through the process. So we were able to even like, um, think through developmentally where he was, where there was, um, interference from alcohol. Cause she was less, um, she was less, she was drinking less in the beginning because she was so sick. Um, so there was, there's a little bit more of, we understand a little bit more developmentally where there might've been some blips, which has been helpful. I think in some of the process, um, the only, <laughs> it's funny, the only kind of um, everybody put it under the label of FAS, but they didn't understand what to do with it. And right. that's been, I think, probably our biggest struggle. But our, even our dentist, like I have to remind him often that Mason has fetal alcohol syndrome and that his teeth are a reflection of that. Yes. Like, the fact that he has, he currently has four cavities in baby teeth is not because he's not brushing. It's not because he's not um, doing the oral care that the dentist has. And so we have been with our dentist about 11 years now. And so we've finally gotten to the point where he doesn't, when he finds a cavity, he doesn't say, oh, Mason, you got to brush better. You got to, it's more of like, oh, that's a baby tooth. We don't need to do anything about it kind of thing, as opposed to where it used to be, Mason, you need to brush better. And I'd be like, well, we know with fetal alcohol that um, their enamel on their teeth isn't as strong as it could be. So it probably has more to do with that than it does his the way he's brushing. Yeah. And one of mine, the same one with the with the scoliosis, same thing with the enamel, always in trouble at the dentist because of, you know, because of that. So it's so interesting. And then, you know, now we know that there's like 428 comorbidities that people who were prenatally exposed tend to be more vulnerable to having other health issues like you've listed and I've listed. So um, just that you're able to get that understanding from doctors that the fetal alcohol has something to do with this. Because I I think that most of the time, unfortunately, we don't get that. It's all these separate pieces. Nobody's putting it all together and seeing that. So, So that's amazing. So he's 11 years old now. Um, what did you do? Because I'm sure you started seeing behaviors because there's behavioral symptoms. So what were those and how did you learn how to address those? So I think it's back to my, like, um, what the one podcast that I, I listened to before Mason came home was a dad talking about, um, he had a six-year-old boy who they had to keep their knives up, even butter knives. And they, um, they, one day he was making a bagel before, um, before work. And he put the knife in the dishwasher, the butter knife in the dishwasher, closed the dishwasher, went to eat his bagel. And his six-year-old went to the dishwasher, pulled open the dishwasher, pulled out the knife and started chasing his sister around with the knife at six. And I remember saying to my husband, Oh, that'll never be us. That'll never happen. We're good. We got this, you know? And at two, my son um, opened the, um, took out one of the little paring knives that was in our drawer. And I was sitting on the couch with my uh, middle son 
and there's about a five years age difference, four and a half, five year age difference. And we were snuggling watching the show and he kind of toddled around, but he came and he went to stick the knife. He like, he came at him with the knife and it was more of a like impact of like wanting attention, like that, that initial like startle piece. Um, But our knives have been up ever since (laughs) there has been, because his initial reaction is it still is the impulse control piece of like, I want the attention this gets attention, right? There's not the malicious, he wasn't trying to hurt Dylan. I mean, I do think there was some jealousy in that point, but I, again, the connections go um, before there's any thought behind it. And so we, um, we started to, like, we started to change um, some of the ways specifically understanding, you know, with the facets training was really good for me in understanding that um, they can feel the tension in the room Mm -hmm. and like kind of the idea that my middle son is passionate about everything, everything, literally everything. And he talks at an octave that is very high and can feel aggressive even when he is, he's happy or joyous. And Mason misreads that all the time. And so there's been a lot of us needing to, um, needing to add words to the conversation so that Mason knows it's a happy conversation or in reminding Dylan that Mason perceives that differently. So there's been some shifting with that. Um, we, you know, the, the adjusting, I think, happened slowly because as the parent of two older boys, I parented them very different than I parent Mason. Um, my oldest has ADHD, and I think um, it was a very good start for me in, in him with ADHD because I, I learned um, that God's responsibility for me to, to Tyler, my oldest, was to parent Tyler, not to parent my neighbor's child, who was, or not to, not to worry about how my neighbor was going to view the way I was parenting Tyler. Tyler, um, particularly with his ADHD, not a lot of volume control, right? Our house is loud, (laughs) not a lot of volume control. We'd go to the library and he would talk at a loud level. And an old lady came over like passing by and was like, shh. Now that would have caused me shame. Like I was not doing something right with my child. He was being too loud. And really through prayerful conversations with God about he's not asking me to parent my child for that lady. He's asking me to parent my child for what Tyler needs. And I feel like that was a very good ground for me to start on with my first child, because by the time I got to Mason and we went to um, Costco, and so Mason has a very strong smell aversion, particularly to strawberries or any kind of strong fruit. And we went to Costco again. He was about probably two, maybe three. And a, lady the um lady who hands out samples handed us a sample of strawberry cheesecake and i like i always do was like would you like a bite and i got too close and he pushed my hands out out of the way and the lady was like that's rude and in my head i'm like i thought that was a great response because normally that creates such rage for him he hits he spits he bites he like there was not enough verbal communication to be able to say hey i don't like that smell I was really actually excited about the fact that he pushed it away <laughs> and she in the, and knowing that let me dismiss what the, what the woman had said. Like I didn't take it shamefully. I didn't take it as a response to I'm raising a rude child, which as a parent that would make me respond differently. So those are the ways I adapted a little bit more to, to the, um, to the ways and the difficulties of some of the symptoms that Mason came home with. 
Yeah. So, so you mentioned that you, you got the FACETS training, but prior to that, what, what resources and, and uh, supports were available to you um, there in Connecticut? Yeah, um, not many. So we had one, um, at, when I went on the, um, the national um, FASD board um, website page, there were two doctors that were um, listed for when we were looking for diagnosis. One was at our local children's hospital um, in their genetics department. And I called and I must have gotten a receptionist who really didn't understand what I was asking. But um, because she said, oh, there's a simple blood test. You can have that done. You can have that done through your, when I was asked, I said, I need a diagnosis. And I'm like, no, it's not that. But I'm like, I don't actually want to go somewhere where that's the response I'm going to get because I'm already fighting an uphill battle, right? So then I went with a neurologist who, um, who was listed on the page as well. And when I got to know her more, she actually has a son from Russia um, with perceived fetal alcohol. Um, and so um, I had gone for her for diagnosis, but like I said, we already had paperwork that um, paperwork from original pediatrician. We had um, the adoption paperwork that said um, mom's alcohol consumption. So that wasn't a big struggle for us. But other than that, there really wasn't anything else. Like we had a pediatrician who had read um, at the, when Mason first came home, we had a pediatrician who um, understood a little bit more, but she left her practice. And so we had to find a new one. And it was really hard because um, I would get some of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like that, <laughs> that dismissive kind of like, this isn't a big deal. I don't really see it. Um, it it helps that I have some letters after my name. I, it does help in trying in um, even with the school system when Mason was in school for a little while. Um, they had I had the head of special ed say to me that they've never worked with a child with fetal alcohol syndrome before, and I was like, Oh, I'm sure you have. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you have. You yeah. maybe not had the label that, that, but I'm really sure that that I'm not the first time. But I was able to bring something different to the table. Um, my requests were heard a little different, and which has led me to be a little bit more advocacy in an advocacy place of going to IEP meetings and um, other opportunities that I've had to be that advocate for some parents that don't maybe don't have the letters after their name because it's hard. I think it's. Um, hard to get some momentum sometimes with doctors and school systems that want to put it in a, well, it's just bad parenting. Mm -hmm. You know, I had one doctor who had said, well, what did you, you know, you, you need to be hit. You need to um, be, uh, be harder in your discipline style. Nope. That's not going to change. The way. <laughs> That's not going to change this. So. Wow. So you found the facets neurobehavioral model, which I love. I, I became a facilitator of the model you know, through needing something for resources, because I'm over here in New York, not too far from you, but nothing, yeah. nothing here as well. And, um, you know, but I when I found facets, it was that brain based approach and understanding that those behaviors are the symptoms of this brain based condition, and that we need to accommodate um, and support our kiddos. So how has how has the FACETS model helped you with, with your kiddo and then with other families? Yeah, so I think it has helped, I mean, because it can be, it can go the gamut of like, not just for fetal alcohol um, spectrum disorder, but it, you know, uh, even autism pieces and um, pieces of other disorders that really work from this place of 
um, looking at what all that your brain has to do in a day and how much you take for granted that you don't actually have to think about it and how much our kiddos do. Like the idea um, for me, it was, um, and I can remember crying in the, in the training that I had gone to. Cause I was like, oh, I have been taking so much anger from the response that Mason would give for, you know, we'd just be, we couldn't play charades. Charades was a, one our family loved to play and we'd all be laughing and it would be funny. He couldn't handle it. And I would get mad that he couldn't handle it more than realize he can't handle the tension that's happening in the room. There is so much going on when charades are happening between the people who are watching charades and the people that he his mind cannot register that and that feels unsafe and it changed my ability to see what he was doing that would then trigger me with anger and be more of that place of compassion of where he was struggling in the environment we were providing for him so we stopped playing charades when he was awake because he wasn't enjoying it it wasn't something that was fun for him um it helped me in transitioning my idea of um, and it's helped me in conversations with doctors at some points about Mason is always tired. So he's 11. Um, he takes at least one nap a day, sometimes up to three, um, which is why a school would be hard um, beyond other things. But that would be one of them. Um, and so it, I'm able to say to the doctors who are like, this is completely normal. You know, all of what he's going through is completely normal. Um, to be able to say that, no, this is like his brain is working overtime for, for all that he does accomplish. And so we need to, um, this is probably why he's tired. It, I think it stopped me from parenting from a place of fear. Yeah. It's interesting about, because their brain is working so hard, right? So they're tired because mm -hmm. I, I have, I have one that's about to turn 20, which I cannot believe but um and he works in our, yeah. in our family business and he almost always comes home from work and takes a nap he needs a nap before he can do anything else and whether he's had that nap or not if he has something else going on in the evening then he tends to have a hard time getting up again in the morning for work and and, and goes in a little bit later now strangely enough this morning he was like at my door at 5 30 like i'm up so i'm just gonna go to work and i'm like okay, because I don't think anybody else is there. But you know, but usually it's, you know, he's late for work, and I'm having to, you know, like, I think you need to get to work. But sleep is is, is a huge thing. Um, and you mentioned the homeschooling because, because um, we've, you know, my family, we were big homeschoolers, homeschooled our kids that we had adopted. But then our youngest two went to school in special education for a season. And then our youngest who's now 17, um, had a really hard time with all of the changes in the environment due to COVID and the crazy mm -hmm. things the schools were doing at that time. So we pulled him back home and we're still homeschooling him. Um, so you, you mentioned your son had been in school for a time. Tell us about that journey from mm -hmm. school to homeschool. Yeah. So actually, my background is in elementary education and psychology. Um, and then I was a preschool teacher for 15 years. Right. So I Mason had gone. He I was a director of a child care center when Mason was about I worked at a child care center. He went with me. Um, I became the director about the time he was four and he was doing the special ed program at our town and then for a half day and then driving the rest of the time to be back at 
or the daycare that I worked at. Um, but we were finding he was struggling significantly at the daycare. He did not have the verbal skills to be with the group of kids that he was with. Um, and so we kept putting him younger and younger. And it finally came to my husband and I that we needed, I needed to do, I needed to not do that anymore. He couldn't handle that, which meant I was going to need to come home. Starting kindergarten, I, we brought him to um, school. Um, it was the exact same school that he had gone through th third and fourth grade or three and four preschool. And we, um, I, at his IEP meeting, um, I had talked to the school about needing to start half days because he does not, he was still napping at the time. And I wanted with Mason particularly, and with a lot of kids um, who have the same brain-based disorder, the idea of things being compartmentalized in spaces. So if Mason got to school and he started fighting with kids because he was tired, that would be what he expected, his expected behavior in that space for himself would be. So um, like at church, we always had a similar route of the way in which we walked or did something. So he knew that that's what we did there. If he got to school and he would um, argue with the kids when he walked in the classroom or if he would, that would, that would be triggered every time he goes in the classroom. Um, I can remember one of his special teachers had said to me, he can't count backwards from 10. And I said, um, he can in the bathtub. So either you need to test him in our bathtub or you need to help him with vision, envisioning that he's in our bathtub because that he needed that compartmentalized kind of space. So I said to them early on, I need we, I want to start slowly because I really want his behavior to for him to know what school is about for him. It's changing from what preschool was, if that makes any sense. So we had we had um, we started half days and he did fantastic and almost to the point where the school was like, well, this was stupid to start, you know, slow this way, he's doing fine. But I knew the reason he was being successful was because of the way we started. So I had to let go of the idea that the school's thinking my ideas were stupid. That's okay. My ideas can totally be stupid if it's going to make him successful, right? He went to first grade. Uh, he did kindergarten twice. And again, it was an accommodation that I asked the school for that the school was really kind of against. But Mason um, has a hearing disorder. And so he got a hearing aid in May of his first year of kindergarten. He figured out that school was about learning in May of his first year of kindergarten. And they wanted to send him on to first grade. And I said, he just learned where the bathroom was. He just learned that we... Um, that school is for learning. He just learned that when the teacher calls him on the playground and he can now hear her, he comes right in. We've just learned the social pieces of, of this um, environment and being here. Let's now try to work on the numbers and the letters and the reading and all the things that you wanted to do in kindergarten that he couldn't do there. Let's put him with the kids that are he is more developmentally closer to than the first graders you're going to send him off to this year. Um, so after a lot of like giving them back their own words, we got that accommodation. Um, and so get to COVID year and um, our school system handed out a packet the first year or the first day um, that everybody kind of went home and it was a second grade packet. He had no accommodations for the for in way, the ways in which he was learning. He was not a second grade learner at that time. Um, they About a week later, they sent back, oh, come back and get a first grade packet. We came back and got a first grade packet, and pieces of those that packet was helpful. As they started to do the online learning, um, there were no accommodations for any of his things. So I was making all of the accommodations. So we would go through money and time. They went through in three days. We've been working on it for almost four years now. We're still in the process of learning money and time, right? So the way in which they um, 
they had adapted none of his schoolwork. He still had specials, but it was kind of like um, he had occupational therapy on the computer. And the other student kept erasing the board on the teacher on the um, online thing. And so he spent most of his half an hour with his special ed teacher hearing, don't do that. Where's your dad? Where's the phone? Like, are you erasing my thing, you know, from the other student there? So we just found that like, he couldn't handle he we had a very hard time getting through the rest of the school year, starting the next school, um, the idea of starting the next school year where they might be in school part of the time they might be out of school. If a teacher was sick, then they'd have a sub, we knew Mason could handle none of that. And so we started praying about homeschooling. um, Which had always been kind of a fear of mine, because I am a terrible at home mom terrible at it. And so (laughs) it was one of those things of Steve and I really praying through what is this going to look like? Because I like people, I'm a people person. And so um, thankfully, at the time, he could work from home a few days, he still can. So I would work the two days that he was at home. um, And that's how it kind of slowly evolved into us homeschooling. And I was super excited the first year about all the fun things. Cause again, I was a preschool teacher. I love stickers and I love plans and I love all of that. Um, but it was definitely a journey. This will be our fourth year homeschooling. And it was definitely a journey of like figuring out what that's going to look like for us. Wow. And so, cause I very similar situation where like we were a homeschool family for a long time, like I mentioned, but the, yeah. the, all of the changes that happened for our kiddo mm-hmm. because of COVID when they went back to school, you know, yeah. was, and, and I got a glimpse of when they were, when they went remote in the midst of COVID and I started realizing this is what they're doing. Like, I could do this at home mm-hmm. because I remember doing it at home when I was a homeschool mom. Right. Um, but then he went back in the fall, but a month in the teacher was like, he doesn't, and, and he was eighth grade, special ed, eighth grade. But the teacher was like, he doesn't remember his, his vowels and consonants. And I'm like, well, he can, you know, he was reading at a very low level, but I had taught him vowels and consonants back when he was littler and I was homeschooling him and he's been in school fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, like, you know, but that's when I realized he's not learning. He's on survival mode because of all of these changes. So there's no learning Mm -hmm. happening. So we brought him home and he's been home ever since. And that has helped significantly. We do have a good relationship with our school district. So last year um, they had, I could bring him in for the last school period every day with the special ed class that he would be in. And a lot of those kids he knew Mm -hmm. from when he had been in to do kind of like a life skills class with them. Um, And then this year, so starting in September, um, he'll, I'll be doing math and reading with him at home. And then he'll go in Mm -hmm. for sixth through ninth period, he'll have adaptive PE, and then they're going to do job skills and life skills. So we're kind of doing this, I call it a hybrid form of school, which I know, you know, our listeners will hear that. And I, I have to say, that this all really depends on the state you live in and the school district mm-hmm. you live in because not every homeschooling family is going to get those kind of accommodations from their school so so we were so thankful so our school our school district happened to change special ed teachers sometimes every six months and so our young mason got to the point where he wasn't even remembering the name of the special ed teacher because she wouldn't stay long enough and he would get a day's notice that she was leaving and some of these teachers he had really enjoyed when COVID happened um so his special ed teacher through COVID stayed the entire year um, but she was retiring at the end of the year and 
we asked her if she'd be willing to tutor Mason in reading particularly because I am dyslexic. And so as much as I can read, I am a terrible teacher at reading, <laughs> a very bad reader, teacher at reading. And so she actually, what started out to be a one year, like, oh, let's try it. She's coming back again for the this fourth year. And she had worked on a program. She had worked with them in there all the way through the materials and information she had. Um, and this year is working on reading comprehension, because we've gotten to the point where he can read, we now want to do the comprehension piece of it. And I've been felt so blessed in the way that God orchestrated those pieces of like, understanding my deficit and where I was going to struggle and filling in those gaps. And I think it's amazing that you can do some of that with your school system, um, or even other people who have co-ops or other people. I mean, I hear these great stories of people of how they kind of piecemeal the homeschool together for what works for their family. And I think that's why most of us decide to start homeschooling because it becomes a need for our family. Yeah, I, f I find it's a great accommodation because you tailor it to your kiddos, mm -hmm. you, you know, special unique needs really whatever what their interests are what their strengths are what you know the things that they yeah. do need to focus on and um it can really work so um what would you say to our listeners who are kind of you know maybe i know some of our listeners are homeschoolers um but then mm -hmm. i know there's some of our listeners who you know their kiddo struggling school's just starting up maybe they're dreading their kiddo going back maybe the kids go back mm -hmm. and it's just disastrous and it's not working what would you say to our yeah. listeners who maybe are thinking, I don't know if I could ever homeschool this child with so many needs? Um, I would encourage them to look at all the different options of that homeschooling is, right? Because when I had the idea, when Mason, I first pulled Mason home, um, I had the idea that I had to replicate the school system's mm -hmm. response. So we had seven curriculums and we had, um, we were going all day and we were going to, that lasted a day and a half. Like, And then I was like, oh, wait, unschooling's a thing right? I got to get him back to the place where he likes learning. Like at the end of second grade, he wasn't willing to read at home at all because there had been so much pressure about what that was like at school that that completely changed by October, November of the year when he started to stay home. He started being willing to make mistakes. He started willing and they weren't mistakes that ended up in three hour meltdowns. They were mistakes that just were like, oh, wait, you might want to look at that word again. And being able to easily go back and go, oh, oh yeah, no, that's the not there. Like that change, um, the idea of what homeschooling looks like, I, there's all of these um, tag names of what, like the different methods you can homeschool, right? Uh, we are a little bit of everything depending on what the subject is. Mm -hmm. um, and I, the, the Connecticut, we're fortunate in Connecticut that there is, um, we have a lot of leniency in what homeschool looks like here. There isn't a lot of documentation needed. There isn't a lot of rules behind it. Um, but my kiddo needs the structure, which I'm not so fabulous at that we're working at like this year, I feel like I got that was my, my goal this year. But he also needs a lot of breaks. He needs a lot of being able to learn outside. He needs a lot of playing with a ball with math facts. He needs a lot of like, um, the uniqueness in which games that he wouldn't get at school. So at school, we were learning in second grade, he was learning putting numbers on a number line, right? Where, where would um, 57 be? in a number line from one to a hundred who cares <laughs> in the grand scheme of what life skills he's going to need that isn't going to serve him and so when steve and i started looking through what we wanted him to learn or what we needed he needed to be in um to be successful 
that was really for us what became our why for homeschooling. We want Mason to feel competent and confident going out into the world that he's going to have to work in with the skills we know he's going to need. Reading, basic third up to third grade math. He's going to need to be able to know how to use a computer with um, with safety, number one, but also with the ability to search um how to fix something he spelled. We're gonna, all of these like techniques and tools rather than complicated algebra, rather than the um, the number line, which isn't, unless he's gonna do some, again, some he, it might be a skill he needs to learn when he decides to do some carpentry and it'll give it a context because he, his brain really works in the, why do I need this and compartmentalize it in, oh, if I'm gonna cut a piece of wood, I need to work. I need to know this the numbers and the yeah to use the tape measure and all of that yeah thank you yeah yeah (laughs) that was the same that was similar to my thought when the teacher said he's you know your son doesn't seem to remember his consonants and vowels and I'm like but he recognizes the letters like if you show him the letters he knows what they are does it matter if he knows it's a consonant or a vowel because, you know, mm-hmm. as adults, we all read and we don't think, oh, look at that. Look at those consonants and vowels. We don't even think right. that way anymore. Or even memorizing yeah. the alphabet, right? I mean, my son yes. is 17 and he probably, I, I'm pretty sure he cannot recite the alphabet from A to Z. But yet if I showed him mm-hmm. each individual letter, he knows what those letters yeah. are and he can tell me the sound that they make, right? So does it yeah. matter that we don't have it memorized in order from A to Z? It doesn't really matter, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of... Right. And I think that that's... It, yeah, that idea, that concept of do we have to have school in the way that they have it? Like what our tutor works, was working with Mason last year about like CVC letters. And like, I don't know those. Like he'd get homework from her that we I would be like... And it was like a one page repeating what he had done before the she came. And I, we would come, I would come back and I'd be like, mm, he did it on his own. Like you could, <laughs> you could work with him on fixing that skill or whatever. Cause I'm like, I don't get that concept, nor have I missed having that concept in my, you know, 46 years of life. <clears throat> yeah. So I just find that homeschooling can be a great accommodation for our kiddos yes. where it might sound like, how could yeah. I ever, and now my son still gets uh, speech therapy, even homeschooling, okay. he would have it. Uh, mm-hmm. The great thing is we were used to, I used to have to bring him to school twice a week for, for speech. But since COVID, they let you do a lot of things online now that they didn't used to. So we were doing just speech online. Now that he's going in for, for a few class periods of day, they're just having it, they're doing it while he's in there, which is great. Um, but you can still yeah. get your services through your school district. Um, or wherever you normally yes. get them, even if you are homeschooling, and you still maintain the IEP, right? Yes. So our school system has decided to um, not continue the IEP um, uh, testing and um, put through because she feel they were saying at the at that time that they weren't gonna like we weren't asking for services. Um, I chose not to fight that fight because I feel like in this system I really need to pick my battles, and if I need to pick it in high school. Totally, we'll do that. But right now we take each each year, year by year. And Mason is funny because if like, we'll go to the the doctor and the doctor will say, oh, so are you looking forward to going back to school? And he's like, no, no, (laughs) I I like being homeschooled forever. Um, He misses some friends. And so this year, uh, but we have, again, we have a lot of people we've connected, stayed connected with 
after school, like once he left school, um, but also in our church environment and our friends environment. Um, but one of our goals this year in homeschooling is to find, we have a small um, homeschooling network in our community that we're going to start doing some just play dates with. Like we're just going to go to the park and play with kids. Yeah. That is that is great. That is great. We we maintained because my older son is is the one that I mentioned that's turning twenty. Um, yeah, he became a volunteer firefighter, uh, and he's he's yeah. he's got FAS, um, but you know it's a spectrum, so he can drive, um, and he goes to yeah. work with accommodations. But he wanted to become a volunteer firefighter, and he joined the fire company, and I helped him. Like I filled out all the paperwork and made sure they understood this is his disability. Um, and then he had to take a class. There was a class for um, firefighters on um, exterior firefighting, like 101 kind of thing. Um, but mm-hmm. but because it's 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 a state type of class, so we had to go online, and I had to help him register for this class and I saw the little tiny button that you could click if you needed accommodations and I'm like hmm you know what does this button do um so I clicked it yeah. and we were able to um even though he was out of school I was able to submit his IEP from high school which listed that he needed testing accommodations he needed test questions read to him he needed yeah. um classroom notes provided he couldn't take notes um so those those um, accommodations were applied to that class. So that, I mean, most of the class was hands-on, but each unit had like a multiple choice test that went with it. And he rocked the hands-on stuff, but the multiple choice, he he got to go in a separate room, questions were read to him, you know, that kind of thing. But having that IEP, even though he was now out of high school, helps when you're needing mm-hmm. some other accommodations outside of school. So, um, you know, it's important to have. We, we have been able to upload his second grade one for some of the places where we've needed. Good. So we had the IEP from second grade. So we've been able to upload that IEP multiple times for everything from um, passes when we, when he goes to Six Flags, he uses a wheelchair and he uses it, he can't stand in line for a consecutive uh, for a, a long period of time we were able to use that IEP even in that situation as well that's great that is great very very useful um so you know it can be easy or it's I shouldn't say it can be easy it's I don't think it's ever going to be easy but it's not impossible <laughs> to <Right>. homeschool <laughs> um you know and oftentimes it's a great accommodation for our kiddos who are struggling so Michelle <clears throat> maybe give excuse me three three of your best starter strategies for families mm-hmm. who are just looking into like, can I, can I do this? What, what's a great way to start? So my um, YouTube, look at um, YouTube videos on homeschooling and homeschooling kiddos with, um, with who have different needs. Um, my other one, pray a lot. Um, but then also start thinking about where do you and your child connect? Where do you guys have fun? What kind of motivates your child? Because all of those are, if you think you haven't, you're not able to teach your child anything, which is where I came from, from the beginning, I was thinking, I'm not going to be able to teach my kid at math. I'm not going to be able to teach my kiddo. Um, And the first time he recited math facts, multiplication math facts, I'm like, wait, the school had no part of that. Like that's only happened at home, right? Like up until, you know, he got it when we were doing time and math, I could kind of pass it up. Like maybe that he got from school or maybe, you know, even though we were still building those skills when he had something that was truly only started in our house that I was like, 
wait, I did like you teach your child so much more than you think. Think about where they know how to get a cup from the from the um, cabinet every single day. You taught them that through having it in the same space, through helping them to get it when they needed. That were the things that were making the repeated repetitive con- connections. And so think not thinking through homeschooling needing to look like what public school would look like or what other people's homeschooling look like and really thinking about what is my child what do I want my child at 21, 31, 71, still going to be able to hold on to and need to get through those stages? Yeah. And being able to know, we know, we know our kids best, right? Mm -hmm. So I know, you know, I know what's going on. You know, I know what happened the night before. I know what's going to happen tomorrow. So I can tell when my kiddo is having an off day, when they're worried about something or stressed out about something. And so there's no Mm -hmm. learning going to be going on. So I can say, you know what, we could we could do a board game because I have my kiddo Mm -hmm. loves board games. And it's a great way to connect, right? You're building trust, you're building relationship and connection. And they are learning some Mm -hmm. skills. And he's a phenomenal monopoly player. All of a sudden, I have discovered he's like, um, I don't I don't let him win, like I'm in it to win it myself. But we we can he can sit and stay focused for three hours, because Monopoly is a long game, for three hours, mm-hmm. and he's he knows how to make change. He he understands mm-hmm. the concept of, oh, I have this, I have these three colors, now I can put houses, oh, and if I actually pay mm-hmm. what it would cost to put five houses, I can put the hotel on. Like, he's got that all, you know, yeah. and he wins, like, all the time, all the time. <laughs> and But we're building connection, and he's learning some, some yeah. skills, and he's still learning something because I think so many times when school becomes such a disaster and it's frustrating and, and there's a lot of, you know, just frustration and anger and fighting going on and it's problems at school and then they come home and you have to sit there for hours and try to get them to do homework that their brain just cannot do. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it damages it does harm to our relationship with our kiddos, which is the most important thing. So actually bringing yep. them home, decreasing all of those stressors, and then having fun learning and making learning fun will go much farther than just staying in this space of frustration and anger and fighting with the school and, you know, trying to advocate for our kids and then even fighting with our kiddo because, you know, they're expected to do all of this homework that they're just not, their brain's right. just not able to do. So well, and I, I can remember when I told my my best friend that I we were looking at homeschooling, and she was saying, um, "You are never going to get a break, and I'm really worried about you about not being able to have a break." And because at that point I was looking for breaks all over the place. What I what didn't realize until after I started homeschooling was the fact that I needed those breaks because I was working with the kid who was overdone by the time he had gotten home. So he would get off the bus or even get on the bus sometimes in the midst of all of his all of his anxiety that he had either about starting the day or about ending the day. Mason is a completely different child than he was when I was sending him to school for six, eight hours, depending on what part of the day was that um, I don't need those breaks anymore. I can remember sending her a picture the first time he was reading and I was reading and I was sitting in the chair with coffee. Now those don't happen very often, but it happened to be one of those times very early on in our homeschooling where I'm like, this is calm. 
I don't think I've ever had this come. I remember sending a prayer to God of like, thank you for this moment, even if it only lasts a moment. But I sent her and I'm like, I couldn't have never imagined that this was possible. I could have never imagined that this type of experience with my child reading and I'm reading with a cup of coffee in a chair, like all the fabulous Instagram pictures always show. I was able to do that. And I was able to do that because his needs were getting met. His needs of needing me close, but also understanding and looking like what does independent look like for me and it's totally like I look at these things are like oh your sixth grader should be able because he's going into sixth grade should be able to do most of this work independently nope that's not my kiddo and if I parent from a place of that expectation I'm a terrible parent and we have a lot of anger we have a lot of anger in the house because he can't do it and I can't do it and and my expectation and so that that um, when we talked about like the ideas of thinking about homeschool one of them is you need to throw out the idea of what you think it's going to look like because it can be immeasurably. It can be so much that, I mean, there are going to be hard days and there are going to be days, like you said, I can look at Mason when he wakes up in the morning and know that this is a day we need to go walk by the river. We don't need to try to remember the math facts. This is a day we need hot chocolate by the fire. This is a day that maybe um, a documentary is going to be the way that we do it today. And I, I have gotten to a place of loving that freedom. Yeah. Yeah, and they learn so much better that way. That stuff sticks, right? Mm-hmm. Because we've we've mm-hmm. they're more regulated, they're calm, and the learning can actually happen. Whereas if it's just a constant battle because of school, and and you know, I think we we've we've both said it here today. And I know last week I talked with Kathy Cole. Um, we don't our homeschool doesn't have to be. It's not a replication of public school. Right. It's completely different than that but yet our kids can still learn so you touched on this a little bit did you have another Mm -hmm. thought Uh, no i was just going to say i think um what what we have that our that the public school doesn't have is relationship yeah we are constantly in relationship with our child relationship makes you want to do things it makes you want to get closer learn things with them it helped it helped mason open up to the idea that learning was a good thing as opposed to, nope, you have to check a box, you have to do testing, you have to, you know, show it, regurgitate what you've learned. Um, it became more about, ooh, I know this, like, he ha- he loves jellyfish. Um, and it came out of a place of fear. He got stung at some point that um, by jellyfish that he wanted to learn more. And we have, I mean, he knows a, a ton of amazing things about jellyfish. Um, and but he wants to explore that with me. He wants to take me along on his on his jellyfish journey. I don't care about jellyfish. <laughs> I don't like jellyfish. I'm glad I, when I don't see them in the ocean. He was very disappointed that our beach vacation, he didn't find any jellyfish this year. I was actually secretly very happy. But I am able to go on this relational journey with him about jellyfish and his stories about jellyfish um, because that's the connection that we have. And that means way more than him being able to um, do you know, 25 problems in a minute. Yeah. And that connection is so important because it lasts beyond school. So at some point, if they were to graduate from school, school stays in the Mm -hmm. past, but yet our relationship with our kiddos endures, especially our kiddos with FASD who are most likely, you know, many of them won't live completely independently. We need to have that secure relationship so that we can support them in the future, whatever their future is going to look like. So we don't want to do so much harm in in the school years. And it's the building block. Yeah. Right. And it's the building blocks for us of like, it's the same reason when Mason needs to nap, I lay with him because when he's 25 and raging, 
I want him to still have the connection that I'm a safe person because 25 enraging and 11 enraging are different experiences. Although he's kind of the weight of a, <laughs> a 25 year old that those building blocks of I can bring either a distraction technique I can bring in when he's, I see he's starting to rev up. I can be like, Oh my goodness. Did you hear there's a new jellyfish? Let's go see if we can find it. Like I have made these connections with him that have built our relationship. So when he is starting to struggle, when he is starting to have um, to not understand the environment or to get overly anxious or to get angry and have a problem with that. We have made this connection through jellyfish, through playing with Play-Doh, through um, building odd things, through him even napping next to me while I'm reading something, I'm taking it as my downtime. I have started to build these relational boundaries and um, connections that are going to save both of us when going later on. Yeah, so important for the for the long haul. Um, Michelle, we, we all know self-care is so important. You said your friend in the beginning was like, oh, you're never going to get a break um, if you homeschool. Yeah. Um, and it is important, especially if we're homeschooling and we're with our kids more, right, than, than kiddos who are in school. Mm -hmm. um, what do you do for self-care? Um, I get up early. So I get up at six o'clock typically. I mean, today is a random day. I did not. But normally I get up about six o'clock because I know Mason will be up probably around 630 sometimes 5.45, like your son, you were talking about this morning. Um, but if I get up at six o'clock, I know I have at least half an hour to breathe, to drink coffee, to um, do absolutely nothing and stare outside. It, it gives me that day to kind of organize my day. I know when I, when I get up any later and he's already up or um, that I have to hit the ground running. So for me, um, I get up early. Um, time with people, I prioritize um, dinner, coffee, things with friends. Um, I am an, I'm an extrovert. Um, and actually I would, it, when taking a test, I'm a, an extreme extrovert, which means I could people all the time and never get tired of it. And so COVID was really hard for me. And it was one of the fears with homeschooling because in COVID I was still a therapist. So I'm still taking in everybody else's stuff that they're struggling with. But my, my self-care, which was always going out to dinner with friends or having coffee with friends, wasn't an option for a while. And so I know that I struggled in that significantly. So I make it a priority to make sure I have dinner with friends or, or opportunities to be able to get out with people. Um, candy with low sugar, <laughs> because um, I, the inflammation is hard, but I really love sugar. So um, I buy candy that might be $5 a candy bar, which I would never buy normally, but when, um, when I need something sweet and I feel like it's a way of self-care, God gave us taste buds for a reason. So I um, buy the, the ones that are good for me. I also buy fruit and then give myself grace that if it over ripens on the counter and I have to throw it away, that is part of my self-care. Um, I buy it with the intention of eating it but I might not actually get to eat it. And I'm okay with that now where I wasn't okay with that then, but I've, I've gotten to a place of putting that in my self-care bucket of like, hey, I bought mangoes because I plan to eat them. Oh, they're too ripe. They're, I mean, they're not ripe enough, not ripe enough. Now they're overripe and you don't get to eat them. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, I had them there. They were beautiful to look at. Hopefully next time I get to eat them. <laughs> well, I have to say that overripe bananas make fabulous chocolate chip banana bread. Self-care with a cup they of coffee. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That sounds awesome. Yeah. Yes. Um, so now you chose the verse I opened with, 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you mm -hmm. eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Um, why'd you choose that verse? What does that mean to you? I, 
in my season right now, I wear many hats. My um, mom lives with us and my dad is in a nursing home with dementia. Um, I'm an only child. So I am the primary, um, I am their healthcare proxy. I am the um, chauffeur. I am the one who makes some visits um, as well as my three kids, two dogs, two fish, husband, you know, all of those, I wear many, many different hats. And so not all of them are very glamorous. And it is a good reminder for me that um, God has asked me to do all the things to his glory. And so whether, you know, I, Mason, when, when, when we were talking about um, one of the accommodation things for him when he was younger, he didn't, potty training was really hard. And so um there were points when he was still six and he was like still needing to go in a diaper and I was changing the diapers. And I kept, um, when I would go from that place of like, Oh, he's six, he should be going on the potty as opposed to God. How can I show your glory in this moment? How can I be an example to Mason of your glory? It, it meant helping him with the diaper at that time. And so I feel like this one, particularly now with all the different hats that I wear, really, um, no matter what I'm doing, I'm doing it to his glory. He is the reason I'm doing it. Yeah, that's such an important perspective, because I find that many of us walk that journey. You know, we've got older kids, younger kids with with, with uh, trauma, FASD, um, mm -hmm. some kind of special need. And then we have parents that are aging, right? And those things going yes. on. I was on that season for quite some time um, myself. Yeah. And... It, it, and it's hard, but I find that even in the hard, homeschooling our kids actually, it, it makes it part of the journey where they're seeing us show love and compassion and mm -hmm. caring for another individual and demonstrating that. And our kids see that, right? So mm -hmm. such important life lessons that they maybe would completely miss if they weren't home with us yeah. and seeing those things. So um, absolutely. And I think it's even more important because we know where their, their direction is headed to a place that's not their, their, um, that are out in the worldness is not going to be easy. There's always going to be a way in which they're misunderstood or um, it makes it difficult. And so for their them to see the compassion that's happening at home, either whether it's with a sick dog or a sick um, or a sick adult, like that, that is a life skill that you can't learn in four walls yeah. at a school. Yeah. And even just certain ways I, I remember because when my dad, my dad was in a nursing home with, with, with Alzheimer's mm -hmm. and I had, I was his, only only daughter really and power of attorney on mm -hmm. uh, you know making mm -hmm. his decisions doing all of the things and then when my older son as he was approaching 18 and we realized we're going to need to do something to help him mm -hmm. um you know we, like most likely we needed to get power of attorney to help him with legal matters and just different things um so of course he had you know has FAS but also well, I'm 18. I'm an adult. I can do whatever I want, right? Mm -hmm. Every what what 18 year old mm -hmm. doesn't say that. Right. And then when I was able yeah. to explain, well, you know, that means I can't make your doctor's appointments. I can't go with you and talk to the doctor. You know, I can't help you mm -hmm. with. You know, he got a speeding ticket. Like all, I said. So, you know, you know how with Grandpa, I was his power of attorney mm -hmm. and I helped him with all those things. If you want me to help you with all those things, then then you're going to need to give us power of attorney to help you with those things. And he was like, Oh, mm -hmm. all right. Whereas I think there would yeah. have been more of a battle, but because I could put it in the context, like you saw how we helped your grandfather, 
we can do that for mm-hmm. you. It's okay, yeah. right? And yeah. it's what needs to happen so that I can help you with doctor's appointments and medications and things like that. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, it even gave him that context that maybe wouldn't have been there if he didn't have that understanding. Right, right. Yeah, super important. Um, so Michelle, I know we could chat forever because we just have all these things that we're passionate about, but we do have to wrap it up. And, you know, you're a professional, you're a parent on the FASD journey. Um, what words of encouragement would you offer our listeners who are, you know, many, mostly adoptive and foster parents, many, you know, parenting kiddos, prenatally exposed? Um, what words of encouragement would you offer us today? I think um, the idea to get one, give yourself a lot of grace. Like you are in a situation that not everybody understands or knows, um, but the Lord sees you. And so, and knows the struggles that you're having and try very much to live in the moment, try to parent from a place of in the moment. I know when I had touched on a little bit earlier, but I, when I parent out of a place of fear, like, oh my gosh, they can't do this in the real world because they'll get arrested. I parent much more harsh than looking at the need that needs to be filled in that immediate moment. So why isn't the other day, um, again, knowing that I have the letters behind my name and the college degree that I know I need to do things doesn't always mean I actually do them. So the other day that our dog peed on our couch and a library book. And I (laughs) was in the midst of cleaning up this. I'm like, I am going to kill her. My kiddo took that literally. And so we raged for 45 minutes because I was going to kill the dog. Again, I know all of this, but in a, in a, um, in a moment of hard, I don't always remember that. And so it meant I'm caught between, um, he's raging and throwing things where I could parent from the, you can't throw things you can't, or I could do the, you need a shower so you can hear that I'm not actually going to kill the dog. So as the pee is seeping into the cushions of the couch, I choose to go and help him get into the shower because that is his that is his calm down place. It's the place that he cries. It's the place that he um, throws toys. It's the place where he can settle. Um, I needed to parent in that moment. I needed to see his needs. His needs were he, we needed that connection back that I wouldn't actually ever harm our dog. I was just mad. Getting him upstairs in that moment, getting him settled. Um, I, the, the living in the moment of what needs to happen right now, I, if I was worried about the couch, I would have been still working here while he was destroying or tearing up other places of the house that while he was working through his frustrations. Um, so I would say living, living in the moment as much as you can and seeing um, what needs to happen right now. Does my kiddo need to have even my neurotypical kiddos, like my middle son, who's pretty much, we call him the self cleaning oven. He's the one who in school, salutes under the radar. He's the one who gets to places where he needs to be on a certain time. He never, he is a kid that I can see his, um, you know, his uh, annoyance level goes up sooner when he hasn't gotten a hug, when he hasn't gotten that like physical contact of any kind. In that moment, he could be spouting all kinds of things that um, he's 17, a teenager can say, if I go behind him or just hug him, or if I go, he will literally just most often melt a little bit so we can get into this talking conversation. So I would say live in the moment as much as you can and see what needs your kids need in that moment. Mm. And give yourself grace, right? You said that. Oh my gosh, tons, boatloads, boatloads. amazing amount of grace. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, 
So Michelle, how can our listeners connect with you? Do you have a, a website, social media? So my website is not up anymore. I did have one, and you'll see if you go on my social media, it says a website. Um, but because I've I've joined a practice now, I'm not doing my private practice by myself anymore. I've joined the practice, but um, I am on social medias. I'm not I'm not great at posting on there, but I am on there, and you can connect with me through um, direct message through there. I'm on Facebook, Michelle Catania LMFT LLC. Or Michelle Catania on Instagram is Michelle Catania LMFT. Awesome. Awesome. We'll make sure we put those references in our show notes so folks can connect with you on social media. Um, such a great conversation, Michelle. Thank you so much for covering. I think we covered all of the bases from homeschooling to FASD to self-care to all of it. Um, I so much appreciate you being on the show and encouraging us today. I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much and letting, getting, letting me be able to tell my story. Thank you so much. Wow, what a great conversation with Michelle Catania. Learned so much from her. And if you are a member of our Hope for the FASD Journey community, Michelle is going to be our October VIP special guest. So if you're not a member of our community, you may not know that every month we meet, we meet on via Zoom three Tuesday, the first three Tuesday nights of every month. The second Tuesday night is always a VIP guest. So a special guest that we connect with. We recently had Dr. Jared Brown on as our VIP guest. We're going to have Michelle on in October and our guest gets to tell their story, share their information, and then our community members get to ask them questions. So it's, it's just, it's almost like doing a live podcast, right? Because they get to interact with the guest. So that's just another perk that we're offering. We're also going to be offering community members. We're going to be adding a once a month support group for teens and young adults who have an FASD who want to connect with others who have FASD. So that's going to be a new feature that we're going to be rolling out starting in October. The amazing Deb Raymond, um, who is also a certified facilitator of the FACETS neurobehavioral model. She's very well known in the FASD community across the country and around the world, I may add. She's going to facilitate um, that support group for our older teens and and young adults with FASD. So um, in order to access all of that, you got to be a member of the community so you can make sure you find that on our website. Um, We're grateful to have you listening to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey um, uh, podcast this week. Um, I hope you were encouraged by Michelle's story and all that she's doing. Um, We want to encourage you on this podcast. We also want to equip you for your parenting journey. So if you'd like to learn more about FASD, you want to learn how to apply the neurobehavioral model to accommodate your kiddos for success, um, you'll want to take advantage of the trainings I mentioned at the beginning. We've got some trainings on the calendar. You can register for our online workshops or check out all of the available resources we have on our website, justicefororphansny.org. Again, there's a link in the show notes so you can get to the website very easily. If you're interested in booking an online or in-person workshop for your group, your agency, um, or if you want a one-on-one consultation, um, contact me again through the website or you can email me directly. My email address is sandraflack at 
justicefororphansny.org. And you can contact me that way if you're looking for something more specific. I do travel. Um, I will be in September heading down to Atlanta to do a training um, and record some modules on FASD with the Faith Bridge folks down in Atlanta. Um, and then I will be um, in Oklahoma City later in September at the CAFO Summit where I will be doing a coaching table on FASD. So um, I'm always available to, to travel, to come out and to, to do some in-person things and to speak and to share as well. Um, so I hope you'll check all of that out. Um, again, if you enjoyed the show, let us know, leave a review, subscribe, follow, um, let your fellow adoptive and fostering friends know. Um, and find and follow us on social media. Justice for Orphans is on both Facebook and Instagram. We have a wonderful uh, uh, Facebook and Instagram. Uh, and I also myself, Sandra Flack, I am on both platforms as well. So find me there. Um, and in the meantime, I'm grateful that you spent your valuable time with me today. I am thrilled to have you along for the journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast, brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.